Special thank you to everyone who uh, helped out this evening, getting things set up, ordering and picking up the sushi, getting the, uh, the camera set up. Tonight's shear is sponsored by Mr. and Mrs. Levine in loving memory of their dear friend Steve Slatkis, who passed away recently. So may the learning that we accomplished tonight be an aliyah for his neshama. The topic this evening is Parshas Lech Lecha, the discovery. And the goal, we really have two goals tonight. One is to understand the main discovery of Avram Avinu. I think if you were to ask most people in the Jewish world or most people really in the secular world, what was the main contribution of Abraham? The majority response would be monotheism. Everyone else at the time believed in many gods. It was a world of paganism. And Abraham was the first one to discover Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. But the goal is to look a little bit deeper and to uh, discover the main, the main chiddush, the main novelty of Avram Avinu. Second goal is to explore his personal evolution. Uh, he himself had a very intriguing journey, and I'd like to get into his background and try to find out what was the shorish, what was the nakuda, what was the main thing that enabled him to accomplish so much. Start off with, uh, with an analogy, so don't get scared, this did not actually happen. Over the last couple decades, astronomers have been picking up on these strange, what they call, vibrations. And they assumed it was some kind of natural occurrence. And then there are always conspiracies out there that they weren't just vibrations, they were signals maybe of some alien race trying to communicate with planet Earth. And just recently, those theories were actually proven, because with the advanced technology, we were able to pick up on the fact that those vibrations were coming in a very complex, organized way. And it was clear that there was intelligence behind the vibrations. So now that's the main thing on every newspaper and magazine and article. Trump could be tweeting the most absurd things, but nobody cares right now. It's all about the vibrations coming from deep space. And then that fateful day comes where planet Earth grows dark and cold, and we realize that we're being surrounded by this alien nation from thousands of light years away. And we, we form global committees trying to work together, even North Korea's on board trying to figure out what we could do. But we soon realize the devastating news that we can't do anything. We're helpless. And therefore, with all the atomic bombs in the world, with that level of sophistication that's the onslaught of the alien nation, we just, we become subservient. And we become their slaves. They take control of the entire planet. Then instead of having a bright future, humanity is no longer progressing with medicine and technology. But uh, we go back to the Dark Ages. Now although this will not happen, we believe in a Baruch Hu, and we believe that He will protect us from any alien races, 
Are there aliens, by the way? Is that, is that thought somehow counter to Torah philosophy? And the answer is, no. Maybe there are many different species out there. That's not for us to know. However, this did happen. Aliens never came to planet Earth, but the perspective of human beings on planet Earth for thousands and thousands of years was basically, we're controlled by all of these different forces that we can't know or understand. We have no ability to change our destiny. We don't know how things work. We don't know why things happen. And the best we can do is somehow try our best to, to pacify and appease and, and, and make these gods like us and hopefully offer them our children so they won't destroy all of us. That was the mindset of humanity for thousands upon thousands of years. In this ancient world, there was so much fear, there was not much room for love. There was so much superstition, there was not that much space for searching for truth, for real answers. There was no bright future, there was no progress, there was no advancement. That was the world of Avram Avinu. So we're going back in time, about 3,800 years ago. Avram Avinu lived in the year 1800 BCE. It was a world of superstition, it was a world of, uh, of barbarism and aggression. Now I have here an interesting little uh, note from the World Population Review 2017. What is the largest state based on population in America? And the answer is my hometown, California. California almost has 40 million people. It's a lot of people. The next best, I want to say best, but the next level in population is Texas with 28 million people. How many people were on planet Earth 3,800 years ago? So according to some historians, there were about 27 million people. That means there are more people in Texas now than were on the face of the Earth in the times of Avram Avinu. <coughs> There's an article here from the New York Times going back to 2009 that at Ur, Ur Kasdim, Ritual deaths that were anything but serene. A new examination of skulls from the Royal Cemetery at Ur, discovered in Iraq almost a century ago. These uh, skeletons were discovered in the 1920s. Appears to support a more grisly interpretation than before of human sacrifices associated with elite burials in ancient Mesopotamia. There was one opinion in the historians that the way they would sacrifice children, or any human being for that matter, is they would give them poison, and then they would peacefully die. But based on CT scans of over 2,000 burials, they found that the human sacrifice was not that pleasant. That was the world of Avram Avinu. What was the main chiddish? What was the main discovery of Avram Avinu? It wasn't just one God versus many. It was a whole different, radically different perspective of the world and a very different picture of the human being. I'll explain briefly. Philosophically speaking, when we say Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad, so the Rambam explains that we're not only testifying to our belief that there's one God and there's not 14, 
we're also, we're being mechazik, we're strengthening our belief in what we know qualitatively to be the essence of Hashem. Obviously we can't know the essence of Hashem, but when we say Hashem Echad, it means there is one Borei Olam, there's one creator of the universe, without any limitation, that's totally above and beyond time and space, and therefore, Hashem doesn't need us. In the pagan view, the, the God of the rain and the God of the fields and the God of the, the thunder and lightning, every God had their own wants and their own desires and we had to try to pacify them. We were servants to the gods. In the worldview of Avram, because Hashem was limitless and therefore logic would dictate, you don't need us to serve you, you're not waiting on me to stroke your ego, so why would Hashem create us? Why do you need all these people? So the answer that Avram discovered was, clearly, creation is not for the Creator. Creation is for us. Olam chesed yibaneh. The world was created, the world was founded upon chesed. This was the, the breakthrough of Avram. So it wasn't just discovering God, it was discovering the human being. In the ancient world, gods were made in the image of man. In the breakthrough of Avram, Man was made in the image of God. And I think this answers a very famous question. We all know, those of us who went to a Jewish elementary school, and we learned the Midrashim about Avram growing up in the house of his father, and his father was an open flower. He had a whole store filled with idols. And uh, he told Avram to walk to the store one day, and Avram being a little chutzpanyak, he has an idea, when his father's out, he destroys all the idols, he puts the club in the hand of the biggest. Father comes back and he explains, it wasn't, it was Zeus. Zeus got really angry, he was upset with something, and he just destroyed everything. His father clearly didn't believe him. And Avram said, listen, if you feel that this thing made of stone can't destroy other things, so clearly this has no power. We all love that, that particular story. His father takes him to Nimrod, who was the ruler of the time, and Nimrod gives him the choice, a choice that was given to millions of Jews throughout history. Take back your heretical beliefs, all this narishkeit with, with one God, and accept the reality of the idols, or you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. That was the option. And we know without flinching, he chose, throw me into the fiery furnace. It almost sounds like the famous story with Socrates. He was, he was called before the High Court of Athens and they wanted him to take back all of his teachings and philosophies that were going against the classic Greek mythology. And uh, they gave him the choice. Right here and now, tell everybody that your writings were false and you've changed your mind, or drink the poison, right? The hemlock. The Jewish uh, historians say it was actually Krepelach. <laughs> Whatever the choice was, he had the famous words, supposedly, what was the last words of Socrates? Anybody know? Socrates? The life unexamined is not worth living. Give me the, the hemlock. And he died. So Avram drums into the fiery furnace, and he's, he's unscathed. He's okay. That is one of the greatest miracles of all times. So the question is, why is that story not in the Torah? 
we have many other stories about Avram doing chesed, inviting people in. So what we see from the text is that he was a very nice guy. He, he liked having guests. He would serve them tongue. That's beautiful. But why not speak about the most magnificent, heroic action any human being ever did? Jumping into the fiery furnace and coming out unscathed. The answer, I believe, is, and this we find in the writings of the altar of Slobodka and others, the reason the Torah speaks about the chesed of Avram, the kindness, the generosity, the sensitivity, is because that's the greatest expression of living with, a, with a understanding and awareness of Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad. It's clear from his whole life that he saw the divinity he saw that, that godliness within every human being, and that's how he lived his life. So to talking about his chesed, telling us stories about him going above and beyond and trying to help out other human beings, regardless of, of race or color of skin, that's the clearest reflection of his belief in a boreolam, in a limitless, compassionate, loving God. That's some of the background. That was the discovery of Avraham. Now, the amazing thing is, you look throughout history, the first two parshios of the Torah, Bereshus and Noach, those two parshios cover about 2,000 years. And we know from source number three, we've quoted this before, this is the Gemara in Sanhedrin, Tana de Be'eliyohu, the teaching goes back to Eliyohu Novi, that Sheishis Elofim Shonda Havi Alma, the world was destined to exist for 6,000 years. 2,000 years were tohu, were chaos. The second 2,000 years, from year 2,000 to 4,000, those are the years of Torah. That started around the time of Avraham, surprisingly, but not coincidentally. Avraham was born in 1948 on the Jewish calendar. So by the time he was 52, that was year 2000. The years of Torah end around the times of the authorship of the Mishnah. And then the last 2,000 years from year 4,000 to 6,000, those are the, the years of Mashiach. Now does that mean Mashiach will come in year 4,000 and be with us for all 2,000 years? Well, the answer is no, Mashiach has not yet come. But it means these are the years of the coming of Mashiach. These are the years that we come closer to that ultimate fruition, to the Geula, to the redemption. So Avram, with his decision, one man making a choice to follow that which was true, he brought the world into that second stage of reality, from a world of chaos, a world of aggression and barbarism, into a world of Torah, a world of humanity, and all of the morals that we have in Western civilization, equality and compassion and justice, those go back to the discovery of Avram Avinu. Interesting Gemara in Yuma that says Avram Avinu practiced the entire Torah. He did all of the mitzvos. And the strange thing is, we know, he was never commanded in all of the mitzvos. He was given the mitzvah of Mila, but how in the world did he know about all Taryag mitzvos, all 613? Hashem never told him. So the Nefesh HaChaim comes along, Rechaim Velazhin in the 1800s, and he says something that gives us a deeper appreciation of who Avraham was. This is source number six. Says the Nefesh Echayim, Zehaisagam kol inyan avodasam shel avos. The entire service of the avos of our forefathers and all of the, the righteous 
the people in the, the years of Or, they were able to fulfill the Torah before it was given, not because they were commanded to do so, rather it was based on they got themselves to this, this, this state of mind where they were so pure, everything they were doing was so sincere, they were, they were able to know intuitively, this is the Ratzon Hashem, this is what Hashem wants from me. So we know that when it comes to at least one category of mitzvos, the category that even if the Torah was never given, we would know intuitively. Human beings, if they're honest with themselves, they know you shouldn't murder, you shouldn't steal things, you shouldn't commit adultery. Avram had such a purity of mind that he was able to also know intuitively that animal, because it doesn't have both split hooves and chew its cud, the energy of that behemoth, of that animal, doesn't fit with my neshama, I'm going to stay away. That was the level of clarity of Avram Avinu. So that was somewhat of the discovery and who he was. Now I'd like to get into what I, what I find personally very inspirational, the evolution of Avram, his journey. There's a famous piece in the Rambam, there's a source number seven, the introduction to Avodah Zorah, where the Rambam gives us the background of Avram Avinu. He says, Once Avram was weaned, so he was a small boy. He began to think a lot. Who caught them? But he was still young. But he would stay up day and night thinking and asking questions. But he would look at the universe and he would wonder how does it work? How do things keep on moving? Who's controlling everything? He had no official teacher. There was no one there to inform him. He was entrenched in this, this ancient place or custom amongst with idol worshippers. And his father and his mother and all of his people around him, the entire society, were part of that mindset, all brainwashed by that culture. And here's an amazing line of the Rambam. Vahu Oved Imahem, and he served the idols with them. He went with them to the temple and he bowed down. But every time he would go, he would always feel this, this emptiness inside. And he would have these questions and he would approach people trying to get real answers. And no one gave him a good answer. So most people living in this type of society would eventually just give in and say, you know what? This is what everybody's doing. I can't live in this inner turmoil my whole life. I'll just give in also. Stop asking questions, just enjoy life. That was not the character of Avram Avinu. An amazing story with a fellow Mark Sanders. Mark Sanders is actually the, the uncle to Mrs. Wilcatch. This is Mrs. Wilcatch's mom's sister's husband. His name is Mark Sanders. He was, I think, born and raised in California, uh, a Christian person. And uh, he, was, he was very well-liked. He worked his way up, and he eventually became a minister 
or a priest, I think it was. And uh, he had a following. People would come every Sunday in droves, and they loved the way he would speak. He was very charismatic, had a great personality. And eventually he got a call from one of the, the head bishops in that area, telling him that we're really impressed with, with all of your work, and we think you're a great guy. We'd, uh, we'd like to have you go to Israel to help convert the Israelis. Now, that offer was an offer of your lifetime. They only would choose from the cream of the crop, the people who <coughs> really had potential, to go to Israel, the Holy Land, and convert the Jews there, and that could be part and parcel of bringing Messiah. And he was so excited. And the one thing you have to do if you want to go to Israel and convert Israelis is you have to like shawarma, and you have to learn Hebrew. So he went through an intense ulpan of sorts, where they taught him Hebrew, how to speak in the streets, and also biblical Hebrew. Somebody is going to ask you a question based on, on a verse in the Torah, and they're going to point to the original. You have to know what they're talking about. So he was very, very excited. He started his Hebrew classes. He took other classes. He was learning the culture of, of uh, the Israelis. Now, how you convert an Israeli, I'm not sure. It's going to be a hard job. You can be as secular as they come, but to convert an Israeli, I don't know. So as he's learning more and more about the Hebrew language, and then going back to the Old Testament and trying to see it in the original, he has some questions. Because certain ideas that, that he's learned throughout the years and different interpretations don't seem to fit that well with the original Hebrew. So eventually he was having a hard time. He goes back to a, a mentor of his, also a priest for many years, an older man, and he sits down in his office and he says, I have to confess, Father, I have questions. I have doubts. I have things that are troubling me. And he shares with him some of the questions and he was looking for, for answers. And the, the older priest goes up to him and he puts his hands on his head and he says a couple of Hail Marys. And he says, you should be, you should be okay now. I've removed the demons of doubt. So he felt like a million bucks after that. Okay, Baruch Hashem, no more demons of doubt. I can go back to my holy work. And he did so, and he was able to keep his mind off those questions for a while. The problem was he was a little bit of a thinker, and the questions came back. To the point where he had someone come into his own office, and they started sharing with him their own questions in faith. Everyone has questions in faith. Uh, it was a very different background, different different issues, but he figured, you know what, I have the trick. I saw my mentor do it, I'll do the same thing. So he put his hands on his head, and he started saying a few Hail Marys, and as he was doing so, and this is the way that he relates the story, no longer Mark Sanders, but Gavriel Sanders, is he saw himself in the mirror doing this. And he was thinking, what am I doing? If you have questions, by God, you have to analyze them and try to get answers. And that set him on his long and, and really miraculous journey, from what I've heard, to become uh, Gavriel Sanders, I think living in Muncie somewhere, with who knows how many children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren. That was the personality, though, of Avramovinu. He was going through the motions, he was serving the idols together with his parents, but he had questions and he wasn't getting any good answers. So the Rambam continues, and he says, 
Avram eventually came to the realization that there's only one God, and he understood Shekola Olam Toim that they're, oh, they're all mistaken. Imagine living in that reality where you have it right and you have such a conviction that I feel the rest of the world, including my family, they're living a lie, they're brainwashed. How old was he when he came to this conviction? The Rambam writes, and there are many different sources for how old exactly he was. The Rambam says, Ben Arboim Shana, at 40 years old, Hikka of Ramas Boro, at that point he came to a full, a full realization of Hashem Echad. So what do you do now? You're living in the twilight zone. You're living in a world that doesn't make any sense. So you have two options. You could follow in the footsteps of Noah, where I can't convince them anyway, so I might as well do my own thing, because they're not going to listen to me. They're so corrupt and evil and backwards. Or, the Rambam says, Kivan Shehikir, as soon as he recognized what the truth was, the Yoda, and he knew what, what, what the, the, the goal of a human being was, he went around and he started preaching to the people. And he wasn't just giving tochacha, he wasn't rebuking, he wasn't just telling them you're living a life of, of, of sheker and lies. He would talk to them, he would engage them, and he would try to convince them of their foolishness. And he would try to teach them you're not following the true path. This became the mission of Avram Avinu. And he didn't hide out. He didn't run away from society. And it sounds like in contrast to Noah, he believed in humanity with his understanding of the infinite creator of the universe and his understanding of the infinite potential of the neshama. He kept on going. Not just criticizing, but trying to teach the darche Hashem, the ways of the infinite. How did he do? The Rambam says, at the end of his life, together with his, his partner in life, Sari Menu, they were able to gather thousands and even tens of thousands of people, Taches Kanfesh under the wings of the Divine. And that's why it says in the beginning of the Parsha that when they left to make their way to Eretz Yisrael, who did Avram take with him? The Torah tells us he took his wife Sarai. Yikach Avram es Sarai Ishto ve'es Lot ben Achiv and Lot the son of his brother, his nephew, ve'es Kol Rochusha Mashir Rochashu and all of their possessions they acquired, ve'es Hanefesh Asher Osu Bacharon, and they took the souls they made in Charon. How do you make a soul? It's a combination of a little bit of water, a little bit of decaf coffee, mix it around with some. You make a soul through teaching Mendarche Hashem letting them know what it means to follow in the ways of the infinite. Those were the souls they made in Haran. When did Avraham finally gain confirmation that he was right? At 40 years old, he had full clarity, and that was his mission in life. When did he know for sure? When was there validation? When Hashem actually came up to him, tapped him on the shoulder and said, by the way, you're 100% right. Great job. I'm there for you. I want to support you. So the Parsha is the first time there was ever any communication between Hashem and Avram. And Avram was 75 years old. So that means he made it his whole life's mission. 
fighting against the entire world, trying to convince them of their, their ways of Sheker living in darkness, without ever gaining confirmation until he was 75 years old. And even when finally Hashem speaks to him, the very first Pasuk in the portion, it says, Hashem Avram, Lech Lecha Me'artzacha, Leave your land, leave your birthplace, leave the house of your father, and go to the land that I will show you. The Orachayim is bothered by a question. Never find this kind of introduction. Whenever Hashem is going to quote-unquote speak to somebody, when there's a communication between the infinite and a mortal human being, it will always have some level of appearance. Hashem will come to you in a vision, in a dream, there's some feeling that I'm, that I'm getting, I'm speaking to the Divine. Obviously you can't see Hashem. Why was there no appearance over here? Says the Orachayim, Tam Hashem kodem haros lo, ha-nivroim. This never happened, only with Avram. He just heard the speech of Hashem without seeing anything. Why not? Very simple. There was no need for Avraham to see anything because he arrived at that conclusion by himself. Through years of questions, through years of agony, through years of suffering, and through years of fighting everyone in society, he had such a clarity, there was no need for Hashem to show up vision. Just speak to me. Tell me what you want me to do. Give me my instructions. The power of conformity and the, the influence of authority are things that are, are very hard to fight. There are two studies anyone here has ever taken psychology 101 in high school will recognize these two names. We have Solomon Ash and Stanley Milgram. Solomon Ash, both Yidin, both nice Jewish boys by the way. In the early 1950s he had his famous conformity experiments. One of the most famous, we have the diagram here in the sheets, what he did is he, he gathered college students together and he would have eight students in the same room and uh, he said we're having a perception task we're testing perception the truth was seven out of these eight students were confederates they were in on the on the experiment you have one flash card with a line and then you have a different card with three lines a b and c and for every, every time he would ask a question, it would always be, take flashcard number one and try to find what line is it the same as. Is it the same length as A, B, or C? So out of uh, 18 trials, for the first two, everyone answered the obvious. Oh, clearly it's C. And they set up the room where the only person really being tested would answer last. So you have some people going before you, and they're all answering C, C, C. Now it's your turn, and it's obvious, it is C. That's for the first two out of the 18. For the next 11, everyone gives the same wrong answer. And you're sitting there looking at this card, and in the, in the control group, where they would just ask you a question, random people without giving any information, you have less than 1% who actually made any mistakes. It was that simple. But once you're sitting around the table, and seven people are telling you that the line and flashcard A, or number one, is the same as line B, 
And now you're looking at it thinking, it doesn't look like line B, it looks more like line A. More likely than not, you're going to go with what everyone else said. The results of this particular experiment is that over one-third of all responses were wrong, and 75% of participants gave at least one incorrect answer out of the 12 trials. <coughs> that was the famous study in conformity. That something can seem very obvious, but if everyone has a certain perception, then you convince yourself they must be right. Now, Stanley Milgram had a somewhat controversial experiment back in 1963. And uh, this was the last of these types of experiments because they made new laws after this for good reason. But he called this a learning experiment, where he would have people come into the room and uh, he would try to tell them we're, we're monitoring uh, interactions between teachers and students. The way it works is there is an elaborate system called the shock machine. This was the picture of it on your paper. And the, the learner, who you don't see, he's sitting in the next room, but you could hear him. Can you hear me over there, Freddy? Yeah! Whenever he gets the answer wrong, you have to shock him. And you have different, it's a whole scale. You start off with a lower shock, and every time he gets a wrong answer, you make it a little bit more intense, and you have to keep on going up. Now, on the machine itself, the third switch from the top said, danger, severe shock. And then above that, it just had X, X, X. Indication, that's very, very high voltage. The question is, would they keep on shocking the learner? And the learner was a professional actor, and whenever they would turn the dial, you would hear a scream. And when it would get more intense, you would hear more screams. And then when someone would actually go to dangerous, severe shock level, you would hear, ah! agony, to the point where sometimes in his whole skit, he would be yelling to the point where he just went silent. So you're not seeing him, you don't know what's happening behind the other, the other room. And then when people got a little bit hesitant, I don't want to keep on doing it, there was the, the person running the experiment wearing a long white lab coat. And he looked at them and said, keep on doing it. Keep on going. How many people kept on going? 63% of the participants continued right to the bitter end. 63% doing something that they, they probably thought they were really hurting the guy, but they were convinced they had to keep on doing this. The conclusion of Stanley Milgram was, are people evil? No. But people are influenced by authority. Now it's interesting, in his own personal life, I don't know much about him, but I remember reading years ago that he was very, very... Uh, concerned with the Holocaust, being a Jewish person not that long after the war, and he had the, uh, the profound question, how do regular human beings, not just the people who were in the army, but, but millions and millions of people living all throughout Europe, how do they participate in, in killing innocent people? And his conclusion was, if you have authority, then you have very little free will, and you have to be super careful. The Ksav uh, Kabbalah writes, one of the great scholars in Germany in the 1800s, 
in his, his defining or his describing of Ramavinu, he says, Kola olam kulo echad. We know that one of the titles of Avram was Avram Ivri, from the other side of the river, and, and the Midrashim explain, because he was conceptually removed from the rest of the world. And the Ksava Kabbalah writes, Avram Lios Cholek Im Anshe Doro, because Avram was fighting with the people of his generation, based on, on his belief and trying to, to galvanize them, Kishem Torah Lavram, that title of Avram Ivri was, a, was a, a respected title. It was as if the Torah is telling us that he was Yechidi Ba'olam. He was unique, he was standing alone in the world. Misnagedis Lechol Anshe Doro, in conflict to everyone else of his time. That was Avram Ivri. So to analyze the evolution of Avram, to ask the question, something that we could hopefully learn from ourselves, what was it? What did he have? What was so special? What was that inner fire that allowed him to fight everything and stand up for truth? And I think the answer is, it was chutzpah. Avram Avinu had chutzpah. The Torah says in many places, describing Klal Yisrael, the Jewish people, as Am Kishay Orif. You're a stiff-necked nation. Am Kishay Orif. And there's a famous Gemara in Be'ah. The Gemara says most people assume that when the Torah describes the Jewish people as a stiff-necked nation, it's a put-down. It's saying that we're stubborn. And that's true, we're very stubborn. But it's that same chutzpah that allows us to survive for the last 3,800 years. It's that same stubbornness that gives us the strength to fight against the world if we have to. It's that same brazenness that allows me to wear my yarmulke in a situation where I don't feel so comfortable. Do it anyway! This is who you are! Be proud of it! There's a, there's a Sforno that describes that when Avram's father first left, the Torah tells us the end of Noah that Ve'yikach terach es Avram beno, Terach took his son Avram and Lot, the son of Haran, and Sarai, and they went and they had in mind to go to the land of Canaan. However, they came to the land of Choron, and they settled there. So the father of Avram had the idea, I want to move from Orkazdim to Canaan, and they never made it. Yet in the very beginning of Parshas Lech Lecha, the Torah tells us that when Avram left, he took his wife, his nephew, all of their belongings, all of the souls that they made, they went out to go to the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Part of the stubbornness of Avram Avinu is, when he had something in mind, there was a mission, there was a task, there, there's something I'm trying to do and I feel it's the right thing, nothing's going to stand in my way. That's part of the chutzpah. So if we want to get clarity for ourselves, how can we somehow emulate Avram Avinu to, to, to get a little bit of that strength? I think it comes down to two things. And this we find in the writings of the Orcho Sadikim. He says, this is the last source, that there are many people who desire to, uh, to grab hold of the good path. They want to do the right thing. They want to change. The only problem is, they just don't know what's good for them. 
V'choshvim b'chol yom, and they're always thinking of new ideas. L'hasig ma'ilel yom, always thinking about getting to the next level. I want to be this kind of person, I want to be this kind of mother. I want to respond to my kids in a more gentle way. I want to come to davening earlier. All these great thoughts. But it's a life filled with great thoughts and not that many great actions. Why not? What's keeping us down? Or Chassidikim says there are two things. Two things that could keep us from maximizing our potential. It's an amazing thing that more than 50% of Americans make New Year's resolutions, New Year's Eve resolutions. Now that means if there are about 300 million people in America, you have more than 150 million people every year. I'm going to the gym three times a week from now on. I'm not eating carbs anymore. Whatever your resolution is. How many Americans actually keep the resolutions? So it's hard to know for sure. There was an article in Forbes that said about 8%, 8% of Americans, or 8% of those who make resolutions, actually keep it. So the Orcha Sadiqim is saying, let's analyze that. Why is that the case? You want to change, why, why can't you? So he says there's two reasons. Ha'echad the first, she'eno makir chesrono. You might want to change a lot, but if I don't recognize what's holding me back, what am I supposed to do? I don't know the things that I'm flawed in. Meaning to say, if I'm not brutally honest with myself, there's no chance of real change. In order to discover truth about anything outside of you, you have to discover the truth that's within you. Avram was brutally honest with himself. The reason why no one else alive at his time came to his conclusion was not because they were less uh, smart, they had lower IQs. It's because they didn't want to come to the realization that my whole life was lived as a lie. I don't want to believe that I'm brainwashed because that's a, that's a very, very difficult thing to get over. I've been living in darkness and therefore it's easier just to succumb. Let me live in the bliss of, of ignorance. There's a story of a young man who traveled to the, the yeshiva of the Kotzker. And it was a long distance from where he lived in his little shtetl in Europe. And he arrives at the yeshiva and he sits himself down. He starts learning. And the Kotzker comes over to him. And he says, Shalom Aleichem. And the young man was, was in awe. Oh my gosh, the Kotzker Rebbe is right here. So he stands up. Shalom Aleichem, Rebbe Murray. So the Kotzker says, Why did you come here? So not quite knowing what to answer, the young man said, I came here to find Hashem. And the Kutzker chuckled, find Hashem. Hashem is everywhere. You don't have to waste your time to travel here to the yeshiva to find Hashem. So why did you come here? And he didn't know what to say. So he turns back to the Kutzker. So why did I come here? The Kutzker said, you didn't come here to find Hashem. You came here to find yourself. That I could help you with. Finding Hashem, Hashem's everywhere. Until we find ourselves, until we discover who we are, what our 
what our strengths are, what are our talents, how could I use them, what are my deficiencies. If I don't have truth of who I am, I can't find truth outside of myself. I could find what's true for that person who I think I am, but it's not true for me. So step number one is to be able to fight and to be able to keep on persevering. You have to be honest, brutally honest with yourself. Step number two, says the Orcha Sadiqim, he says, You have some people who know. I know who I am. I know my flaws. I know the areas that I have to work on. And, uh, and I want to improve. But for some reason, they never get around to it. Because life is too hectic. And I have so many other things to do that are also important. And they're taking up my time. So although I was young and idealistic, now I'm looking back and most of my life is gone. And I realize... I never became that person I wanted to be. And I'm looking at the relationship I have with my children and I'm realizing I, I didn't want to be this kind of father. I didn't want to be that kind of grandfather. I didn't want to only learn that much Torah when I was young and idealistic. I thought I could do so much. When I was younger and I wasn't really davening, I assumed that maybe one day I would actually daven and think about the words that I'm saying. But now I'm looking back and most of my life is gone. I haven't done that yet. Why not? Because there's so many other things going on. I was speaking to a young man uh, after FAU, and he was thinking about going to yeshiva. And he was at yeshiva for a little bit before, for a couple of months, and he came back, and, and the experience was a mixed bag. And uh, as we were talking, he was explaining to me his, his reservations. It came out that the main reason he didn't want to go back to yeshiva is because he was afraid that if he would do so, he would really enjoy it, that he would buy into it, and he would be sucked into that world. I don't want to be in that world. But at the same time, he's telling me about his search for truth and his desire to, to really do the right thing. So I told him, I said, it sounds to me that perhaps your greatest difficulty in your search for truth is the fear of actually finding it. It's, it's nice and dandy to talk about being a truth seeker. We all love to do that. But when it comes down to it, when push comes to shove, what defines a truth seeker? It's based on being brutally honest with myself, discovering who I am, and at the same time, having enough of a rut zone, having enough of a desire to keep on pushing, even when it's not the in thing to do, even when I'm not getting appreciation for doing so. So looking back at the life of Avraham Avinu, and we're only looking at the, the tip of the iceberg here, the discovery of Avraham was Hashem. But more so than understanding Hashem, it was his newfound understanding of the human being. Because there is an infinite boreolam, that means within every human being, there's infinite potential. And that likely was the source of his chesed. That was his drive to help people. He wasn't just helping people. You can also love a dog. And they're very lovable. And you can love a little gerbil. You can love lots of cute things that are furry and cozy. But it's not the same love as when you understand something is a, is a spark of the divine. That chesed is on a whole different level. That's where Avraham Avinu was. And that was likely his belief in himself. Understanding the infinite Boreolam is part of all of us. That allowed him to keep on persevering, to fight against everyone. The only way he was successful, though, is by being brutally honest. To search, and to search in a way where 
I'm even going to do certain things that may not be comfortable knowing this is what it takes to find truth. So we have to keep in mind the story of, Gav of Gavriel Sanders. Asking questions is the only way we arrive at clarity. Questions in the Torah philosophy are not to be shunned. They're not to be uh, scared of or to be afraid of, but they're sanctified. Through questions we arrive at answers. Through uh, darkness and the brainwashed existence we arrive at a, limitless, a, a limited state of reality and we're lacking the real potential of a human being.